0: From Stanford University and KZSU, this is the Stanford Storytelling Project.
1: I felt
2: unstoppable. There's a a verse in, in Psalms that says, What can mortal man do to me?
0: In the Bible, the book of Acts tells the story of the conversion of Saul, who changed his name to Paul. Saul was traveling to Damascus to persecute the followers of a new and heretical sect called Christianity. As he approached the city, a light from heaven flashed around him, and as he fell to the ground, a voice called out, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The voice was Jesus, and after hearing it, Saul was struck blind for several days. He changed his name, converted to Christianity, and wrote the plurality of the New Testament. And that's what happens when belief and non-belief meet. Lightning, Blindness, name changes, and a voice from heaven. Well, maybe it's not always like that. Okay, it's probably almost never like that. Maybe it is society finding faith, or maybe it's an individual losing it. A believer confronted with their doubts, either suddenly or as they build up slowly over time, a dull ache that spreads over their soul. Even Mother Teresa felt this way. She wrote in a letter, Jesus has a very special love for you. As for me, the silence and the emptiness is so great that I look and do not see, listen and do not hear. The tongue moves in prayer, but does not speak. I want you to pray for me, that I let him have a free hand. Sometimes the crisis of faith is overcome. Sometimes it's not. From KZSU Stanford, This is the Stanford Storytelling Project. I'm your host, Micah Cratty. This week on the program, belief meets non belief stories about the faithful in conflict with society, their families, and themselves. Today's show is in three parts. First, two Stanford students, one gay and one a conservative Christian, map out the battlefield between gay marriage and Christianity. Second, Drew jacoby Senghor tells a story about how the divine divide in America entered into his relationships with his parents and his girlfriend. And third, Will Rogers faces the same divine divide in himself, and he is able to bridge part of it by posting videos online and by going to Quaker services. This is the Stanford Storytelling Project. Stay with us. In America's culture wars, gay marriage is right up there with abortion. Vinnie InterSimone and Matt Buchanan, a homosexual and conservative Christian respectively, team up in this next story to try and understand the conflict in gay marriage and the war on Christianity.
3: What are the first thoughts that come to mind when you hear the words homosexuality and gay marriage?
4: First words and thoughts that come to mind is I believe it's wrong. I would say the first words are
5: probably wrong.
3: Major opposition from religious people.
4: A
6: lot of argument, a lot of politics that could be used towards much better things instead of wasting time and money.
3: I'd expect these statements to come from the uneducated. I'd expect to hear them in a place where people had little interaction with gays, where they didn't watch Willing Grace or Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, where people hadn't heard homosexuality wasn't a disease or a bad choice, but a part of someone, the same way heterosexuality is a part of someone. I'd expect to find these statements among people who hated gays. But these statements don't come from boondocks or hick towns and they don't come from people who hate gays. They come from my own backyard. They come from students at Stanford University, a West Coast college I consider a very liberal and accepting place. What's more, these reactions to homosexuality are not from random people who have never met a gay person. I know that because I am a gay person, and these people are my fellow students. These are people I've taken classes with, debated philosophy with, gone to parties with, these people are my friends I recently became friends with a Stanford student named Matt Buchanan he's my partner for this piece one day Matt and I were talking after class and the issue of gay marriage was brought up I assumed Matt one of the nicest guys I know was in favor of gay marriage I was wrong I asked him how on earth he could be friends with me while continuing to be against gay marriage he said because it is against his religion I want to find out how even Christians who are very socially accepting of gays, people like Matt, can still be against gay marriage.
4: I feel like everyone should have the right to get married and um, live a happy life, however I feel like when it goes into homosexuality, it crosses a boundary where there's too many
3: um, I'm speaking to Courtney Mole, a Stanford student from Los Angeles outside the church she attends every Sunday. Born and raised a Presbyterian, Courtney says that religion is an important part of her life.
4: My faith disagrees with homosexuality. Um, however, personally, I feel like um, I feel like homosexuality is a sin, but I feel like they should still be able to have certain rights as a normal citizen in America.
3: Courtney is expressing something I don't really understand because it sounds to me like a contradiction. She wants society to treat gays equally, even though she thinks homosexuality is wrong.
4: Coming from such a liberalist city, yet having really conservative views, I'm accepting of them. However, from a a religious standpoint, I'm sort of opposed to it as well. I kind of contradict myself when I say that I feel like they should have the same rights as individuals, because we're all, you know, part of America and as citizens, we should have those rights. However, I feel like. I'm still kind of questioning whether gay marriage should be um, legal or whether they should be able to adopt kids and stuff like that.
3: How can a person who is religiously opposed to gay marriage and homosexuality fully accept gays as members of her society?
5: I don't think that um, homosexuality is right, so I wouldn't say that I think gay marriage is okay. But I do believe that people have every right to be happy and that people should be accepting of homosexuality and not treat them any differently.
3: Originally from Fort Worth, Texas, Ashley Matthews is also a student at Stanford. We're sitting outside a coffee shop talking about our experience of going to a Christian school for 13 years. I noticed the gold crucifix hanging from her neck as she describes her deep commitment to Christianity.
5: My religious beliefs um, are opposed to gay marriage. I know Christians oppose gay marriage because it says in the Bible that gay marriage is morally wrong. I view homosexuality as a sin, but lots of things are sins. Lying to your parents is a sin, and God sees all sins as the same. I think it's a very religion-based issue, and that most people base their opinions about homosexuality on their religion.
3: My friends might seem like a small sample size when trying to find out the legitimate reasons people are against gay marriage, but they're an accurate sample size. A 2003 poll conducted by the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life cited Christian religion as the major factor in why Americans oppose gay marriage. The Pew poll found that a majority of Americans are against gay marriage, which is not very difficult to explain, when the poll also found that a majority of Americans believe homosexuality is a sin. What is particularly interesting is that the poll also found that 76% of Americans do not mind being around gays. Like my Christian friends, Americans are religiously opposed to and socially accepting of homosexuality. So it looks like most Americans are against the legalization of gay marriage for religious Christian reasons. This strikes me as wrong for the same reason it strikes my friend and fellow student, Jared Drucker, as wrong. Mainly that marriage is an institution defined differently by each religion.
6: People say that according to certain religions or certain histories, uh, marriage is only between a man and a woman, but then you're putting one history or you're putting one religion over the other, and you're saying my God thinks that it's between a man and a woman, but how about the next guy's God or the other religion or something like that. I personally just, I personally just don't believe in one religion over the other, so I just don't, I just don't really pick religion. Since I'm not deeply religious, I basically don't, I don't, I haven't picked a god or believe in a god. But I believe in just some being or some conscience or something. Whether it's just, whether it's there or not, it's just like innate in you. And since I don't put one god over another or one belief system over another, I'm not going to put one type of marriage, which is based on a certain belief system, over another and say it could, be, it could be between any two people, no matter what sex you are.
3: We can use the past controversy over contraceptives to make even more sense out of Jared's argument. Many Catholics believe the use of contraceptives is immoral. Catholics once used this religious belief to argue that contraceptives should be banned. However, it is doubtful that today's Catholic community would vote to outlaw the use of contraceptives if given the chance. For some reason, Catholics are not using their religious beliefs to determine their legal opinions. If we apply Jarrett's argument to this example, Catholics may realize that outlawing contraceptives would be placing their own belief system above the belief system of others, just as Jarrett believes outlawing gay marriage is placing one belief system above another. So why are my Christian friends using their religious beliefs to make the legal decision to ban gay marriage? Stanford student Richard Barber argues in his dorm room overflowing with library books that many Christians oppose gay marriage because religious leaders tell them
7: to.
8: A lot of people, a lot of the religious affiliates um, oppose gay marriage because it's just something they've been taught, something they've grown up with, and they just don't question it. Uh, that's from personal experience. Um, and then I just think uh, it's, it's it's something that a lot of religious affiliates don't understand. They don't want to understand. They don't try to. So um, So they... They don't, there's a lot of emotions when they think about it, and they don't really think about it with, uh, from a more intellectual point of view. And so um, they, they let their emotions get mixed up. I definitely think you know, a lot of people oppose it just because you know, their, their religious leaders say it's wrong.
3: Richard's argument holds weight not only because he is the son of a Christian pastor, but also because his argument is supported by the Pew poll cited earlier. This poll found that people who hear clergy speak about homosexuality are more likely to hold highly unfavorable views towards gays. It also found that evangelicals who are preached to about gays are more likely to think homosexuality is a choice and more likely to believe gays are a threat to society. While it may not be surprising that Christian leaders have influence over the beliefs of their congregations, it is surprising how many of their sermons are devoted to the issue of homosexuality. The same Pew Forum poll found that clergy are as likely to talk about issues related to homosexuality at the pulpit as they are to address abortion and prayer in school. Why are Christian leaders spending so much time talking about gay marriage
8: when there are so many other issues to address? It's something they can hide behind sometimes. Uh, it might just be more of an issue of not even religious belief at first, but just personal preference. You know? like maybe they don't really you know, like the idea of homosexuality, which is fine. But then they can use um, religion. You know, They can say, well, you know, since my religion says so, I don't like it. Richard's argument that
3: Christian leaders oppose homosexuality and gay marriage for primarily non-religious reasons is the same argument Stephen Waldman gave in an article he wrote for Slate magazine. The former national editor of U.S. News & World Report argues that, Many of the world's faiths do argue against homosexuality, but they don't raise it to the level of moral calamity. It's bad, but not that bad. Privately, religious conservatives are appalled and grossed out by homosexuality, but they realize that the more common American view is modulated, so they choose to focus on the idea that marriage in general is under threat. Some Christian leaders don't even bother to modulate their views. Pat Robertson, a televangelist whose show The 700 Club receives one million viewers a day, said, quote, The word for homosexual behavior is sodomy. That is what is used in the official documents. It is sodomy. It is repugnant. He added in another episode of his internationally televised show, quote, The practices of those people is appalling. It is a pathology. It is a sickness. Whether Christian leaders oppose gay marriage for religious or personal reasons is difficult, if not impossible, to determine. It seems Courtney, Ashley, and Jarrett have no doubt that Christian leaders oppose gay marriage because their Bibles tell them to. However, Richard and Stephen Waldman offer a second perspective, arguing that Christian leaders oppose gay marriage because they find homosexuality repulsive. A third reason Christian leaders oppose gay marriage is given by Janis Krums, a citizen of Latvia and a student at Menlo College. He has agreed to let me interview him in his apartment. Right now, religion in a turmoil because of many, many scandals and many different things. That this is something that people do not want to change because it's been such a long marriage has been such a sacred thing for so many years that they just can't see man and a man or a woman and a woman being married. But this is not going to disappear, basically, and they have to make some kind of changes. Giannis presents a very different view of Christian leaders. In his eyes, Christian leaders are not devoting their sermons to gay marriage because they believe homosexuality is an important part of the Bible, or because they are personally disgusted by gays. Rather, Giannis sees the Christian world as under attack and sees gay marriage as a weapon in this war on religion. They are scared that religion as a whole is going to disappear. Is there a war on religion? I asked Professor Scotty McLennan, Stanford University's Dean of Religious Life and Minister of Stanford Memorial Church.
9: Uh, I, my understanding is that, in fact, the Catholic Church, uh, for example, is losing uh, a number of uh, is losing recruits to the priesthood compared to what it was 30, 40, 50 years ago. So it's more difficult to to uh for the church to get new priests that a number of 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 churches are in fact being closed that the demographics uh, look negative in a variety of ways and as i say if you go back to the 50s and 60s that's true for protestants as well you know they've been losing except for the the new evangelical increase uh, the mainline churches have been losing uh, members over that, that period of time so Yes, I think that people, there is a a sense of threat out in society at large. Uh, For many Roman Catholics, a sense that their church is losing to a more secular understanding of the world that for many evangelical Protestants who uh, feel that society uh, has been dominated by a liberal perspective and from from their understanding, a perspective that is not Uh, a committed religious perspective that they have been under fire or discriminated against.
3: On July 25th of last year, Reverend Joseph Matreya of Resurrection Church in Brooklyn led more than 2,000 of his Protestant congregation in a rally against gay marriage at New York City Hall. He stated, quote, This is a much bigger threat to our national culture than the threat of terrorism is. The concept of same-sex marriage is at war with family values. There can be no reconciliation. It seems impossible to determine exactly why Christian leaders oppose gay marriage so vehemently. It could be for the reasons my Christian friends believe that homosexuality is simply a sin. It could be for the reasons Richard, the son of a preacher, and Stephen Waldman, the former national editor of U.S. News and World Report, believe that Christian leaders are simply repulsed by homosexuals or it could be for the much less simple reason that Dean McLennan seems to hint at and Giannis explicitly states Christian leaders are at war and gay marriage is both their current battlefield and their target of
9: choice I think religion in general has had this tradition both of helping people form their identity and provide them with a powerful uh, community, sense of community. But also, pretty quickly, wagons are circled around your tradition and you get fearful that others are going to attempt to destroy it or attack you and so on. And you start to talk about we and they. You start to see the other as other rather than as part of uh, the same community as you are. And so, ultimately, religion has led to holy wars and pogroms and uh, lots of discrimination.
0: Vinnie InterSimone and, and Matt Buchanan are recent Stanford graduates. This is the Stanford Storytelling Project. In the Civil War, a national conflict was felt at the family level. Cousin fought against cousin, and brother against brother. In this way, larger disputes come down to a personal level that embroil us and our loved ones. In our second story for the program, Drew Jacoby Sangor tells us the story of a divine divide in his family and his attempt to overcome it. <laughs>
10: Right now, I'm headed home. It's a Friday afternoon and my dad's driven three hours in rush hour traffic to come pick me up from school in Palo Alto. I haven't been home from college in three months, but it seems fitting that I'm headed there because I guess home is where this story actually starts. At home last summer, I broke up with my girlfriend Lisa. Don't worry, this isn't a sob story about a romance gone bad. There were no melodramatic soap opera portrayals, no tabloid news coverage. But three months after the breakup, she said something that would change everything for me. Amidst the awkwardness entitled to ex-couples, we were laughing uncomfortably at each other's jokes when Lisa, half whispering, told me that she had realized she needed someone in a relationship who could share her love for God with her. What I was hearing from Lisa was that in some important way, religion had been a dividing factor in our relationship. As you can probably guess, Lisa is a strongly religious girl who comes from a tight and cheerily devout Christian family. Me? Well, I'm not any of those things. First of all, I'm atheist. What is amazing is that the entire time we were together, we had never talked about this stuff. I think we were afraid of what might happen if we did. So we had shied away from religion, hoping that it would never come up but obviously it never went away
4: Don't you know that I'll be around
10: after her revelation as I watched news stories about the arguments over the place of religious values in Bush's re-election I was surprised by how upset I was made by the inability of Americans to have a productive conversation about religion but all my life I had been having the exact same problem. I realized that I had never had a conversation about religion with my parents either. Like Lisa and I, my mom is religious and my dad is atheist. And you see, my parents' relationship went bad. I mean, biblical proportions bad. The most memorable moments are a highlight reel consisting of swearing, arguments in the street, and a tricycle my mom threw at my dad's car once. They never married, and the three of us never lived in the same house. With me and Lisa, it seemed like I had fallen into the same trap they had, that the divide had just been too vast a bridge. After 20 years of knowing my parents, I needed to find out what I had never thought to explore with them before. Why had my parents never talked to me about their beliefs? And why had they never taken the care to hand them down to me? I hope that answers to these questions might help me understand why apparently Lisa and I would never have been able to make it work. And so here I am now, riding shotgun as my dad fights rush hour traffic, headed home to make things clear.
1: Be right.
10: The first thing I wanted to know was how my parents had even come to believe what they did. Hopefully. This would help me understand the importance of religion in their lives. And if I could understand that, then maybe I'd be able to understand the importance of religion in their relationship together and to pinpoint where everything went wrong. I went to my mom's house and spoke with her first. We sat on a futon in a tidy green-walled bedroom as she told me about how she had grown up in a Catholic family, went to Catholic school, went to church, the whole package. All things I already knew, though. But then she started telling me a story I had never heard before. She started telling me about the order of the children. As a Catholic schoolgirl, my mom had decided she was going to be a nun, and so set out to do so.
11: I, I was fortunate enough to have my sister and my cousin, who were two years younger than I was, and they, they went to the same school. So um, luckily, they shared the same desire to have this, this calling. So I, I said um, okay we're going to start our own order. We're going to ha- we're going to be um, you know we're going to be the ch- the order of the children. And and this is what our um, habits are going to be. Um, this out these outfits that my mother had bought for us it was you know worn it was late in the school year and they were called scorts and basically what they were were little um, t-shirts and then little short shorts.
10: They even set up an altar in the bedroom and performed communion with Necco wafers. But as it turns out, my mom didn't last that long as a nun.
11: What I found was that um, You had to wash the skorts, you know, you had to take them off and you had to put them in the washing machine and you had to put on a pair of jeans or a pair of shorts and you know, then what do you do? You know, you can't go in and pray, you got to go outside. And it just seemed like, um, there wasn't a a heck of a lot happening in that corner of my bedroom, but there was a hell of a lot happening outside in the neighborhood. Pretty soon the world just sucked us in like a Hoover. (laughs) (laughs) And the skorts, you know, they just weren't in fashion anymore. (laughs) I mean, you know, hey man, I'm not wearing those. (laughs) Nobody's wearing those anymore. But uh, religion was, it was like breathing.
10: Even though my mom gave up her ambitions of being a nun, This story still said something about the strength of her beliefs. Beliefs that I would later find had factored heavily into my parents' division. Beliefs she still holds today, but had never before expressed to me. On the other side of things, my dad's childhood story of spiritual decision-making was far different. Back at his house, we sit in an office littered with books and with the door closed, and he starts to tell me his story. Having saved his money from working all summer, shining shoes, and cleaning out lockers at the nearby Alameda Naval Base, my dad, who was 13 at the time and headed into high school, bought himself a brand new letterman jacket for track. But that same day he bought it, it was stolen. And so he went home, looking for comfort from his mother.
7: first thing she did was, what, you lost that? She broke out the extension cord. And she was going to whip me. And I just told her, I said, it's wrong. This is my, it's, it's my loss. It's my money. I work for it. You don't have to buy me anything. Why are you beating me? And all she said was, get down. And I looked at her and said, it's wrong. It's unfair. And I won't. And took off.
10: He ran to the local reverence house, pleading with him for help. But all he did was call my dad's mother to tell her to pick him up.
7: My mother came down with her extension cord in her hand. In her hand. And this man of God watched her practically rip me from his house. You know, and I'm screaming at the
10: top of my voice. You know. I was outraged, this was so unfair. So he took off yet again. But this time, his mom was in hot pursuit.
7: The housing project was boxed in by with about a six foot fence and so I'm cutting between and I'm looking around Mama's right back behind me, right? So the six foot fence comes up and I hit that fence. It was like left foot, right foot over, and I'm over the fence and I'm I'm still tracking because you know I wanted some distance between me and her and I'm just pausing a little just a little bit you know and what do I see I see this woman her skirt up over her legs coming over the fence and I just
10: say oh. Still running my dad reached the barbed wire fence surrounding the military base and saw that he was running out of options.
7: And I know what my last chance is. And I literally take my sweatshirt off as I'm running, you know, and I wrap it around me and I hit that bar bar fence, and I throw myself on the other side and I don't run anymore. I just stand because I've got nothing left and I'm standing there and I'm looking at my mother. She runs up. And I'm looking and I'm breathing hard and we're just looking at each other. Your butt's going to have to come home sometime. <laughs> <laughs> that what she said. That's what she said. So I ended up sleeping that night underneath the bleachers. God didn't help me. And I was about as innocent as you can. God is supposed to be there to uh, protect the innocent. That's what I hear in school, you know, children of the innocent. What do I need a God if he's going to let me be beaten and I've done nothing? What do they need a God for? Hell, I can take care of myself.
10: These two stories from my parents revealed just how important and deeply seated their beliefs were. But it only confused the issue of why they had kept from sharing them with me. If these experiences had really been such influential episodes in their lives, why weren't they important enough to talk about? Shouldn't beliefs this strong have been front and center in the relationships between the three of us? There must have been a decision that my parents made somewhere along the way where they agreed that those very values and beliefs which were rooted in those childhood stories needed to be hidden away and pushed into the background like bad memories. I asked my mom if this was the case, and she finally began to shed some light in this direction.
11: There was an essential, deep uh, chasm between your father and I that we um, struggled to bridge never uh, doing a good job and and then we finally just stopped communicating and you just became the one thing that we had in common so the whole thing for me at that time when this the question of faith um, you know came up was that I wanted to avoid your father at all costs. I wanted to avoid the conflict um, at all costs.
7: I just didn't want her to uh, not give you an option. And she has her own need. She has her own seeking after something. And that, that need may not be yours. And my concern was that you should not be indoctrinated.
11: So I made the choice to go toward avoidance rather than toward what my values were because I knew that we weren't, you know, strong enough and weren't, you know, uh, evolved enough in our relationship to um to have a dialogue about it.
7: Give me your hand.
10: This was the exact reason I had been looking for. It was not that my parents had decided they would not discuss their beliefs with me. The fundamental problem was that they had been completely unable and afraid to. On the way back to school, at the end of my weekend at home, I thought about how the situation my parents had put themselves in was not much different from my relationship with Lisa, though our relationship was never hostile like my parents had been. I was troubled to think that it may have nonetheless been headed in that direction. Our inability to talk about our beliefs would no doubt have caught up with us sooner or later. With this on my mind, I decided to talk to someone who would be able to tell me just how common of an issue this is for couples. Someone who could give me some idea of how to make a relationship work when the people in it have drastically different beliefs. There
9: are a lot of situations uh, across this country where one uh, party in a marriage will be quite religious, and the other will have either no religious background at all,
10: or will be very
9: anti-religious, or would say they're agnostic.
10: Um, so it's, um, it's it's pretty common. This is Reverend Scotty McLennan, the Dean of Religious Life at Stanford University. I've gone to meet with him at his office inside Memorial Church, the large cathedral on the Stanford campus. McLennan pointed out that in addition to communication, respect and empathy are essential for uniting people in a relationship who realize that their foundational beliefs may not be identical.
9: So there are families that are tragically torn apart because of differences in religion. I think it's more an issue when you realize that somebody's religious faith is very strong and very central to their worldview, to their way of acting, to their ethics their sense of what it means to be a family then you've got an issue that might be similar in many ways to people from very different cultural backgrounds how do you relate to somebody who doesn't have your understanding of the world how do you work it out in such a way that you have empathy in your relationship and you're genuinely respectful of each other
10: the importance of respect that reverend McClendon stressed made me realize that for discussion to be effective in preserving a relationship, it needed to be meaningful. I remember moments in my childhood when my parents exchanged words, many of which consisted of four letters or screamed or even both, and there was no surprise in the fact that resolutions and common ground were never discovered. The thing is, this common ground was never really sought after. In order to further illustrate his point, McClennan stated that this problem within a family is very similar to what is happening in America politically. He confirmed what I had originally discovered as I sat on the couch watching the evening news about the red and blue states, that America itself was becoming divided over differences in religious beliefs, just as my parents and my relationship had been.
9: These are dangerous times and these are risky times and religion has always been a a double-edged sword. All of the the great prophets and teachers and so on have spoken on the one hand about peace and about unity and about harmony and on the other hand have uh, uh, scriptural references and and, uh, statements that are us, they kinds of statements and which tend to divide and that's very much what's going on at this time in, in,
10: in history. The problems characteristic of this time in history were strikingly similar to the problems I had seen between my mom and dad and Lisa and I. Those beliefs we hold the tightest have come to be seen as our most dangerous topic of discussion. During the election just last fall, tens of millions of people shattered the possibility of dialogue as they stepped all too eagerly into the fiercely oppositional categories of the religious right and secular left. The analogy between the personal and the political is far from perfect but it seems to reveal that much of the political division and religious polarization in America has been created by a lack of meaningful discussion. As those us-they statements that McLennan mentioned have become more and more common, national dialogue has become increasingly futile. The beliefs that each of us hold have become our greatest obstacle to national unity. But it doesn't have to be this way. That's one more thing I've learned from my parents' conflicts. You see, the story of my mom and dad's relationship doesn't end with scream curses and a tricycle soaring through the air. Amazingly, over the course of my lifetime, my parents have come to be close friends. What they had to do to make this improbable friendship work was discover that they had something in common which their feud compromised. That thing was me. I've come to think that this is what America as a whole needs as well. Those beliefs we hold the tightest have to be addressed because they don't just go away. Avoiding discussion only puts at risk those essential connections we actually share. I can't say that I know the answer, but what I can say is that if our country can find that thing we have in common that is in jeopardy, that thing that is at stake for all of us, we may finally see that we don't have to agree on religion if we can only come to recognize those values that bind us together. If we can do this, then I believe dialogue will finally be possible. For Lisa and I, the discussion over our beliefs has finally become possible. And our relationship has transitioned into friendship. For us, that thing we saw at stake was being there for each other. Though we may see now that we want different things, I believe this ability to communicate our deepest values has made it possible for our friendship to thrive where our romantic relationship fell short. In the case of my parents, I believe they finally found that common ground which was in such desperate need of tread. And in doing so, they found that behind all their initial differences, those things that they felt to be the most meaningful and important in life were the same. I've made no drastic religious conversion since going through this six-month process, but I have gained something. This resolution that my parents have reached is something that I've come to find comfort in. Now when my parents and I go out to dinner together, and instead of battling about their differences, they can joke affectionately about each other's quirks, I sit smiling at the hope their seasoned relationship radiates. What Reverend McLennan said is true, if we're to bridge the divides between us, meaningful conversations about what is important to each of us are essential, yet even though I know it will take America as a whole that much longer, I still believe it's possible. Because I found that if I can believe in my parents, (laughs) I can believe in anything.
0: Drew Jacoby-Sangor is a recent graduate of Stanford University. Coming up... conflicts can pit whole civilizations against each other. We've seen this with Jihad and with the Crusades. But despite the blood from these conflicts, our most tumultuous battles with faith can occur within ourselves. For our last story, Will Rogers, an agnostic, fires up his webcam to speak with the believers on a Christian website. that first crisis of faith. We wonder whether God exists, and if he does, whether he is exactly like we are taught at church or by our parents. Sometimes the crisis passes, and we are stronger in our beliefs. Other times, it marks a radical change in our identity. Will Rogers had his first crisis of faith in seventh grade, when he was learning about different creation theories at his Christian school. The subject was fascinating, but also confusing to him. And he began to think that maybe God had put the Bible on earth to confuse people, Maybe only those that rejected it would be saved.
2: I, I don't know. It was this original idea to me, I felt like. But, but I sort of just grew to question the Bible for the first time. And it's kind of silly looking back to, to think of that as the question. But it was one question that sort of hit me at a time in my life when I was like, I don't know. I don't know if the Bible is true. I couldn't read it the same way that I did read it. got through it though you know it was this time of doubt lasted maybe three really difficult weeks and then afterwards my my faith grew much more strong because of that doubt and um, and that's something that's really common in all, all types of faith is when you go through doubt you know it strengthens your faith um, Kierkegaard talks about that so
8: don't know what it is about, yeah, yeah, you won't in my mind don't why I stand here darling, morning all the time. Well, I can see it's time, I just leave it all up to the start, so yeah.
0: Will is now a student at Stanford University. Originally from Tyler, Texas, he grew up in a Christian home. The kind of home where God is not a priority, but the priority. At least, as big a priority as he can be in a family with five children living in a secular world.
2: In theory, it's... The single most important thing, the only important thing, really. Not, not even like the, the number one on a list of things, but really the number one on a list of only one thing. And in, in practice, it doesn't necessarily work itself out that way just because most people can't afford to be quite that ideal. Will's questions weren't answered,
0: but he grew to accept living with the uncertainty. The years that followed were some of the best of his life. The closeness he felt with God was an amazing feeling, one that is difficult for him to put into words. How
1: did that feel?
0: um,
2: Indescribable. Um, It was, uh, to put it in complete sentences, I guess, it was indescribable. It felt indescribable. It felt like. Uh, I felt unstoppable. There's a a verse in in Psalms 54, I think, maybe 56, in Psalms that says, what can mortal man do to me? I lived with God inside me and I felt indestructible in a a way that um, that even if my body was destroyed completely, that I would that I was still that I was still connected to this supreme being.
0: Will felt so strong in his conviction, he transferred from the Christian school he grew up in to a public school so he could have a stronger ministry for Christ. At first, things went well for Will. He met a lot of people and established many relationships, always with his ministry goal in mind. He wanted to convince them of the truth of Jesus Christ in a loving and non-confrontational way. But over time, he began to believe that he was the one that needed to revise his beliefs. He came to believe that maybe the God that was in him was in non-Christians, because their stories reminded him of his own spiritual experiences.
2: At the time, the most profound spiritual experience I had ever had was uh, up on a, a literal mountaintop on this chapel and in a, you know, at a place called Camp Red Cloud in Colorado, and I was with all of my classmates from school and we had been at this camp for a whole week, we were, we were dead tired, but the last night we went to this chapel and just sort of had this prayer and share time where everyone was like super brutally honest with each other about their own problems and made themselves really vulnerable and we would sing. and. And something came over the church where we were all just crying uncontrollably. And it was this really, really profound experience that none of us could really describe.
0: will met a woman named Dana who practiced a religion called Ekankar. Her descriptions of faith sounded like his own. He felt he couldn't reject her beliefs without rejecting his own beliefs. So that is what he ended up doing. Rejecting them both. I asked him if he considered the possibility of accepting both experiences. No.
2: Because her religion was stupid. (laughs) Her, I mean, it was, she was, she was talking about how it's this ancient religion that was persecuted under Roman Christianity and only could resurface in the nineteen sixties in America. You know, so I'm like, oh gosh, you know, this is this purely hippie religion that people basically made up and may have put in this mythology stuff. And then but then when she talked about her own experiences where she would like she talked about sitting in a closet and chanting, Hugh, hue, hue, it was so weird. But she she meant it. She she had it in her eyes. She knew she she had experienced something and she was she convinced me that she had experienced something I couldn't I couldn't know what it is and and she couldn't really begin to describe it other than you know little physical things for instance like the idea that she was crying and crying and crying or that or that she would just um, feel moments of elation and I was like wow that's kind of exactly like my own experiences
0: In his last years of high school, Will felt torn between his burgeoning doubts and his responsibilities as a Christian leader. He was the vice president of his school's Bible club, and he didn't want to infect others with his doubts. Will entered a three-year-long spiritual drought, starting at the age of 17, where he could not even think about God or confront what was going on inside of him.
2: Between the ages of 17 and 20 for me, for those three years, I couldn't even say anything. Not even in my journal, not even privately. You know, I, I couldn't describe what was going on inside me because, um, I, I don't know, it was just somehow I, I couldn't understand. It.
0: At Stanford, Will turned a corner as time passed and he met other people from similar backgrounds going through a process similar to his. After he emerged from his period of silence, Will started looking for ways to express himself. He started writing a dialogue between his current and former self, trying to reconcile the differences. While writing this dialogue, he confronted many of the issues that made him doubt his faith in the first place.
2: Exclusivity, the the principle of exclusivity, the idea that God has saved a specific number of people, and that the rest of the people are going to hell. You know, that's something that, that, uh, that I definitely believed for a very long time. And to go back today and try to, try to say, you know, well, my beliefs today are basically the same. There's no way that I can say that. I, I no longer believe that at all. Will also found a website called GodTube,
0: which is a Christian version of YouTube and he started posting videos and dialoguing with the Christian members. Will wanted to force them to interact and confront the non-Christian world. He felt that maybe if he hadn't been so secluded from the non-Christian world, he wouldn't have freaked out so much when he met it. In all, Will posted seven videos, six of them with long hair, looking very much like a Sunday school Jesus. Most of his videos consisted of him trying to explain himself. In one, he told a parable. In another one, well, he didn't do much of anything. Uh, There's one video in particular that kind of caught my attention, and I was wondering if you'd want to watch it right now and kind of describe what you're going through. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> oh <God. laughs> so this one is entitled, Non-Believer Having Trouble
2: Finding the Words. Yeah. Okay. Like most of you, I was born into a Christian home very supportive family, my um, my mother and father are the two most wonderful influences on my life that I've ever had, and uh, I'm struggling to wonder how personal I should get.
0: Could you describe what's happening in the video right now?
2: Yeah. Um, so I, by this point, I had already been messaging with a lot of people, and a lot of them were interested in knowing more about me. What sort of background did I come from? Um, and someone who's come from a very Christian background. Um, uh, where Christianity was the most important thing for me for years, it was it was the only thing that was important to me, and and so people would message me and say hi, you know, well first things first, I know that you've never been a Christian, but I would be interested in hearing your story, you know, so so I'm I was sort of put into a position where I I have I felt the pressure to prove to them that Christianity was real to me, and and do it with words, and I. Um, and um, so I mean, we're sitting here watching this.
0: It's still playing, and yeah. you're, in the video. You're just you're sitting there. You're not.
2: I'm completely silent. Completely I couldn't solid. think of the words. I couldn't think of um, how to say what sort of spiritual background I came from for this sort of audience, for an audience of people who have already set themselves up not to believe me. And this goes on for like four minutes. Yeah, it's really long. Um, Yeah. So while this video is in many ways my most sincere one, my most emotional one, my most vulnerable video, it's also in a big way my most vain one out of all of them and sort of what... um, yeah, so yeah here it is that was the one the very first comment on the video says this video is this video really is ridiculous this guy is only making these videos for show kind of like lonely girl fifteen on youtube after about the first ten minutes sitting there looking like he was going to cry i had to shut this off in parentheses reba was on So, <laughs> how did that,
0: that make you feel
2: when you read that? I, I mean, I felt in many ways convicted because, um, because yeah, it was silly that I'm sitting here. Um, I wasn't going to cry, but I was just sort of lost, allowing myself to be lost in my own thoughts on video camera.
0: Many of the comments he received were actually positive. The process was not perfect,
2: but it was not fruitless. Uh, it was, uh, a time where I was really forced to process what I was thinking, um, to put it into words for other people. And it, I mean, I met people who, I mean, it was through messaging a person that I met through GodTube when I was really forced to look at the person of Jesus Christ for the first time in literally years, which for me was really, really, really profound. Mm-hmm.
0: Will had already told me he does not like labels, so when I asked him to describe his current spiritual identity, I was only partially surprised when he answered agnostic Hindu Quaker.
2: Agnostic meaning, you know, under everything that I say is this vast uncertainty. Everything is subject to questioning and and re-questioning. Hindu, because I think that Hinduism is one of these beautiful religions that doesn't distinguish between believers and non-believers. So by the Hindu definition, everyone is Hindu, or by that Hindu definition, I suppose. And then Quaker, because the, I've, I've found such support in the Quaker community, um, people who speak my own language, my Western Christian language, and do it in a way that, that I have a lot of respect for. A lot of people who who preach the gospel of Jesus do it in, in, in a very exclusive way. They preach it in a way, it's a very us and them sort of thing. We have the gospel, they don't. Quakers, or, or at least the Quakers that I've met, believe in this, this idea that God is in everyone, and rather than try to bring people onto our side, the good guy side, uh, it's, it's a religion that encourages simply, you know, not even drawing sides at all and, and meeting people where they are and interacting with, you know, the God that is in them.
0: What do you feel, um, I don't know, it, how you'd want to describe it spiritually, emotionally or, or psychologically, when you're in a Quaker service, when
2: you're sitting there um, in silence? Sometimes I feel a lot, sometimes I don't feel anything at all, oftentimes I'll just let my mind wander freely. You know, I I spend a lot of time in sort of silent meditation, which is basically the same as what I do in Quaker Meeting, but what makes Quaker Meeting different from personal silent meditation is that it's with other people. There's this sense of community, a group of people who's committed to silence, and the the profoundness of silence, and so I—I I, I suppose, if I put it in a word, it would be community. I feel community, spiritual community. Do you feel spiritual presence, or are you—are you even looking for that? I—I I don't really know. Um, I wouldn't really know how. I've been to Quaker meeting, you know, one where it was just completely silent. Nobody spoke during the whole hour of unprogrammed worship. And there was this guy who stood up and who said later on, you know, this has been the most profound spiritual experience of all of us being together. And and it was just weird listening to this man talk about how he had had this experience that I kind of missed. I didn't really, I mean, sometimes I do, sometimes I do feel something. But that's not really what I'm after. I'm not after f- a feeling. What are you after? I don't really know. <laughs> Both in his
0: God Tube videos and at Quaker Meeting, Will is overwhelmed by the power of silence.
2: For me, what's e- what's just as important as learning more about what started this whole thing in a scientific way is simply sitting in silence and acknowledging that I don't understand, acknowledging that whatever it is that did start this whole thing, this whole universe thing, is probably still around. It might be still around, you know? Or even if it isn't still around, it was around at some time and so I sit and I acknowledge that. So I suppose I I could say that's what I'm doing when I go to Quaker meeting. Sometimes I just go to sit, though.
0: Will Rogers is a student at Stanford University. Today's program was produced by Jonah Williams and myself. It was engineered by Bonnie Swift. Thanks to Vinnie InterSimone, Matt Buchanan, Drew Jacoby-Sangor, and Will Rogers for their stories. Original music was performed by Amboy Kelso, Dave Chisholm, Hunt Alcott, and Jennifer Lizzie. Their music can be found on Stanford iTunes. You also heard original music by Kissing Johnny. For their generous financial support, we'd like to thank the Stanford Institute for Creativity in the Arts, Stanford Continuing Studies, the Program in Oral Communication, and the Hume Writing Center. KZSU would like to thank the Law Offices of Fenwick and West for their continued underwriting support. Remember that you can find a podcast of this and every episode of the Stanford Storytelling Project on Stanford iTunes and on our website, storytelling.stanford.edu. Tune in next week, same place, same time, for skipping class. Stories about when our education system doesn't work like you think it would. For the Stanford Storytelling Project, I'm Micah Craddy. Stay tuned for the Palo Alto City Council.